0: hope you've all been well this last fortnight since we last spoke today's episode is long overdue many of the topics covered in today's episode you will be familiar with if you have listened to the other episodes but this podcast has never done an entire episode solely on the industrial revolution the causes the numbers the theories and the nature of the economic consequences of the industrial revolution With me to discuss this on this first bonus episode of the series is somebody you also have met before, but I can think of no one better to cover this topic in depth than the person who's going to discuss it. That's Professor Nick Crafts. Nick has spent a good deal of his career on explaining and understanding the Industrial Revolution, along with many other topics, any of which we could have talked about today, which he is well acquainted with but I guess many of the topics we cover you can catch in Nick's book from 2018 called Forging Ahead, Falling Behind and Fighting Back, British Economic Growth from the Industrial Revolution to the Financial Crisis. Nick has recently published a paper in the Economic History Review called Understanding Productivity Growth in the Industrial Revolution. That's published in January 2021. And that paper represents a sort of a tour de force In covering the main views of the Industrial Revolution over the last 40 odd years. Okay? In today's episode, we also cover subjects that are a bit more technical than somebody unfamiliar with economic history would be used to. We cover areas like growth accounting and we deal in depth with numbers during certain sections of the interview. If these are unfamiliar to you and if you have difficulty understanding, just just hang in there because I think Nick has some really important insights to share on the subject matter. So, without taking any more of your time, I'm going to hand you over now to my conversation with Nick Crafts. I hope you enjoy it. Take care of yourselves. See you soon. Nick, thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us a second time on the Economic History Podcast. The first episode was well enjoyed by everybody, and today we're going to talk about something close to your own career, you have spent a lot of time improving your and our understanding of the industrial revolution. What is the industrial revolution exactly and, and why is it what you call a landmark event in world economic history and perhaps human history?
1: Well, I think people's ideas of what the industrial revolution is differ a bit. But the way I tend to think about it is that at the heart of it is a change in the nature and pace of technological progress. Uh, That technological progress uh, from that point on is going to be the centre feature of economic growth. That's going to allow faster growth, it's going to allow sustained increases in living standards which were just not available to earlier centuries. I don't think we should see it as the start of economic growth The British economy, for example, had clearly been growing very slowly, but sort of uh, least intermittently over previous centuries. And the economy is a long way away from sort of the bare bones subsistence line, uh, poverty line by the time the Industrial Revolution takes place. But I don't think it had ever had the capacity for sustained productivity advance, which the Industrial Revolution uh, delivers Uh, So it's a landmark in the sense that from now on, there's much more scope for living standards to increase. Looking more at a global perspective than just Britain, since now there are growth opportunities available, which weren't there before... Uh, this starts to make for a serious difference between countries who are equipped to exploit those opportunities and those which aren't. So the sort of institutions, policy, colonial relationship that you have uh, matters much more in the sense that previously, however good your institutions and policy were, you wouldn't grow very quickly. Now, there's a big difference between uh, those who succeed and those who fall by the wayside. So I think that's why it's important, in a sense, in world terms, the spread of modern economic growth, which is what Kuznets called this phenomenon, uh, was by no means universal uh, or immediate. Some places
0: got it and others didn't. And your work in 1985, uh, the book you wrote on the Industrial Revolution as well as recent work by uh, Stephen Broadbury et al, has led us to a more nuanced understanding of the, quote, revolutionary, unquote, nature of the Industrial Revolution. What has new research suggested in terms of growth rates compared to our previous understanding of what happened during the Industrial Revolution? Yeah,
1: I mean, I just said that the Industrial
0: Revolution
1: was revolutionary in terms of what happened from then on to technological progress, but that doesn't equate to necessarily very fast growth at the time. When I was a student in the 1960s, uh, people tended to have this very dramatic view of the Industrial Revolution. One of the names much associated with that was Walt Rostow and his notion of takeoff. And takeoff was a sort of 20 or 30 year dramatic change in growth and the determinants of growth. When I looked at the numbers as I started research on this uh, 40, 50 years ago, I gradually persuaded myself that that actually was not really right. And the more recent work by Broadbury sort of confirms my view in in general, improves it in detail, and again is not a, a rostabby of the Industrial Revolution. So... I think we're talking about something which is a more gradual acceleration in growth rates. We're probably looking at real GDP growing below 2% a year until at least 1830, when it perhaps gets towards 2.5%. If we're looking at labour productivity, during what's often seen as the classic years of the Industrial Revolution, let's say 1780 to 1830, We're talking about average rates of growth of half a percent a year or a bit less. After that, it goes up to 1% a year. By the mid-19th century, perhaps 2% a year. But that's spread over about 100 years, not um, telescoped into about 20 years. And if you start to think why that might be and how this matches with our notion of lots of good, important technological improvements, well, then I think the first thing you'd say is those technological improvements affect a bit of the economy uh, initially, Uh, So these growth rates I've just told you about relate to the macro economy. There are bits of the economy growing much faster than that. Cotton textiles, for example. But equally, there are large parts of the economy where really there's little or no productivity advance. I think domestic service would be probably quite a good example uh, of that. Uh, So it takes time for modern technology, if that's what we want to call it, uh, to affect most of the economy rather than just an important, smallish part of it.
0: You might have a revolution, but it's such a small share of the economy that it won't show up as a revolution. Initially,
1: yeah. And then gradually these technologies get improved. uh, They have more purchase across the economy as a whole. uh, So the momentum builds up. But initially, as you say, we're talking about uh, technological progress, which has a profound impact on a small part of the economy.
0: And in your work, you've used growth accounting, a lot in economic history, particularly during the 19th century, but also in recent work with Kevin O'Rourke, you've used it throughout the 20th century. Can we just explain for the listeners what is that growth accounting and how it can help us to understand economic performance in both the Industrial Revolution and in contemporary times?
1: Growth accounting attempts to uh, look at and to measure, to quantify uh, the sources of growth. By that, I think the right phrase we should use is the proximate sources of growth. So it tries to identify components of growth which might be due to capital investment, to technological progress, uh, to labor inputs, uh, to improvements of the quality of labor. Call that human capital, if you you would like. It it tries to decompose growth into those sources. Obviously, behind that, there's a much deeper question. If you do think, oh, growth accelerated because there was a faster growth of the capital stock, you know, that translates into people making decisions which have increased investment. And there are all sorts of things which will affect those decisions. That's where things like institution, policy, and so on might come in. So I don't think growth accounting is really something which would tell you about the causes of growth. I think that would be a misunderstanding. I think it's more a diagnostic of how did growth happen And then it's quite interesting, I think, to say, well, does growth happen? Because it appears that what the growth accounting people would call total factor productivity uh, dominates the story. Or is it more uh, something to do with uh, strong growth in factor inputs? Total factor productivity attempts to look at output per unit of total input, it surely will be affected by technological progress. It doesn't translate one-to-one into the uh, contribution of technological progress. It'll be affected by changes in efficiency. It might pick up scale economies, things of that sort as well. But certainly, if you have very rapid technological progress, you would, I think, normally expect to see TFP growth being pretty strong strong. So we do find uh, quite big differences between countries as to what contributions come from each of these sources. A classic one uh, in the recent past is the difference between economic growth in Europe and the so-called golden age of growth after World War II, where total factor productivity growth plays a very large part in many countries. And uh, to an extent, in contrast, East Asia, uh, during the so-called Asian miracle, uh, where it appears that, relatively speaking, investment plays quite a, a bigger role in the story. does uh, isn't to say there's no TFB growth. Of course, there is. But capital inputs, relatively speaking, were more important in that case. Um, and that gives you, I think, uh, a flavour, uh, an idea that the flavor of growth was a bit different in those two cases. And that opens up a menu of interest. Interesting questions. So I think that's the part that growth accounting uh, would play. Uh, The interesting thing about uh, when I applied that uh, to the Industrial Revolution with the the new estimates of growth of output uh, that, uh, that I'd worked out. Uh, Then we find that TFB growth, total factor productivity growth, actually, it was quite slow and slow to improve during the early 19th century. So total factor productivity growth's contribution to growth is 0.1, 0.2% a year uh, in the classic Industrial Revolution period. That, I think, I first of all thought was puzzling. And then I came to the explanation or rationale, rationale for that that I gave you a few minutes ago, that yes, there are some very important technological changes, but they don't dominate the economy uh, in the way that intuitively you might imagine they do. So there are large parts of the economy which are unaffected. And the other thing I think which I, I gradually appreciate and I should have known already from the uh, historian of technology is that Technologies sort of improve a lot as they are used. Uh, They don't come fully fledged in the first instance. uh, So that, you know, think in our own day, the the motor car that we drive now is massively different from the Model T, hugely better. None of us would really want to drive the Model T every day. Uh, Similarly, by the mid-19th century, the steam engine was hugely better than the one that James Watt uh, invented at the end of the 1760s. Uh, so incremental improvements, steady and sometimes for a long time, takes the capabilities of
0: inventions far beyond their original version. This ties in with what you've talked about before with Amara's law. Um, can you just briefly describe that concept for us?
1: I think this idea is that when technologies first come along, people get incredibly excited once there's some sort of proof of concept. Uh, Then it seems for a long time not much happens in terms of the impact on the economy. Uh, So people then start to say, oh, this was all, it's all a myth. They get very disappointed. They say uh, uh, this is another fault dawn or something like that. And then in due course, the improvements to the initial technology, the complementary investments that might need to be made to exploit it, they start to come through, start to come on stream. And then the impact builds up to be more than was expected in the disappointment phase, although not necessarily quite as much as was there originally in the excitement phase. In earlier work
0: in the economic journal, you used the growth accounting method to get at the relative contribution of the key general purpose technology, uh, the steam engine. You also looked at railways in that paper, but for now let's stick with the steam engine. How was steam deemed to have improved productivity in the first place and, and what did your growth accounts show? Well,
1: uh, steam obviously was an important source of power. Uh, It is invested in in the context of steam engines. Uh, Those obviously do have uh, a role to play on railways, uh, but that's after 1830, uh, not in the early Industrial Revolution period. And they also, of course, have quite an important uh, use in steam ships, uh, again, uh, later on in the 19th century. Um, Thinking of the steam engine, uh, I think the thing that uh, we know from other people's research, which I used to inform that Economic Journal paper, uh, John Konefsky did a, a very important thesis in which uh, he, he counted up, in effect, the amount of horsepower in use and looked at the, the sectors in which it was being employed. And we found that some bits of the economy start to use steam a fair bit bit. The first use is probably in mining for pumping in particular. Uh, You then do start to see things like textile mills being powered by steam. But even in 1830, Konefsky's estimates were that the amount of horsepower supplied by steam was really quite small. There's probably only about 165,000 horsepower in use in 1830, according to his estimates. Uh, So... The steam engine is an important part of additions to the capital stock. Uh, If we want to use the growth accounting methodology, we can, if we wish, um, divide, decompose capital uh, investment into subsets, uh, different types of capital investment. Uh, When we do that, we find that really because there are so few steam engines in use, um, the contribution that it makes to productivity growth is almost inevitably very small. Uh, We can also uh, look at the contribution of total factor productivity growth within the manufacture of steam technology. That will be a part of its growth contribution. Uh, But that, too, uh, in the early years is pretty small as well. Uh, The steam engine wasn't improved all that quickly. There are a variety of reasons for that, but uh, essentially the real breakthrough with steam engines was when you moved to using high-pressure steam james watt approach had been low pressure steam high pressure steam comes along around the middle of the 19th century starting from the 1840s it's crucial eventually to steamships for example it makes much uh, makes the use of steam much more widespread Anyway, when I did the growth accounting and looked at those contributions, uh, the contribution to the growth of uh, labour productivity uh, before 1830 is about 0.01% per year. It is essentially negligible. That's almost in the measurement noise. After that, it does pick up and you start to see 0.3% a year. Uh, That's probably the average all the way from 1830 to the First World War. It it goes up and down a bit, but that's the, the sort of contribution. So cumulatively the contribution of steam is a lot. It's just this 0.3 year after year after year, but it never has a kind of spectacular burst of uh, a big contribution, say, in a particular decade or something like that. Uh, The sorts of things we probably should say here are that until you moved to high-pressure steam, many activities, it wasn't very cost-effective. It used far too much coal. Uh, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic uh, carried no cargo because it was full of coal. It just got to the other side. It had to use so much coal. Uh, sort of a bit like the Concorde uh, in, our, in our own generation, except with the steamship, they did solve the Concorde problem you know, as steamships got, uh, got better. So it's very expensive in the use of coal. The technology of how steam engines worked wasn't understood at a theoretical or conceptual level. Essentially, improvements there are made by systematic observation, Uh, people looking at uh, the difference it makes with small changes in design to various performance indicators. That does allow a certain slow improvement, but it's not what you'd expect in a a sort of more scientific uh, later generation. If the second industrial revolution had discovered the steam engine, it would surely have uh, developed and been improved much, much more quickly than they managed in the first industrial revolution. And then, as I was sort of hinting earlier, there are plenty of sectors where steam power makes no difference. Steam power made no difference at all to the productivity of the average
0: housemaid. What I found really interesting was you did a comparison of productivity contribution of steam, as we've just talked about, with the most recent so-called industrial revolution, ICT, and you found very distinctive differences. I think you've already hinted at it there with the second industrial revolution. What were the differences? and what might explain them?
1: If one does the same kind, uh, uses the same kind of methodology to look at the contribution of ICT, um, this was not my work, but uh, I'm reporting essentially work done uh, by people who are pretty expert in this area about the United States. They found that ICT was contributing about 0.8 of a percent a year to productivity growth in the United States, between 1974 and 1995, then around the turn of the century, that contribution approximately doubled, and then after, after about 2004 or five. Uh, So point three is the steam sort of benchmark contribution once it really gets going. Uh, Already by the mid-1970s through the 80s, uh, you're talking about two or three times that for the American economy. And the thing that caught my attention at the time when I I made that comparison was, of course, the famous remark by Robert Solow that you can see the computer age everywhere except in the productivity statistics, he made that remark, which has been endlessly quoted ever since, in 1987. Actually, already, (laughs) the contribution of ICT by historical standards was quite stunning. Uh, Only an economist with no sense of history could have got it that wrong, I think. In terms of chronology, just perhaps to put this in perspective, if we think about James Watt as the start of the modern steam engine, it wasn't the first steam engine, as we know, but we date that at 1769. We see the, the peak impact coming almost a 100 years later, I think, then the equivalent sort of moment in computers is probably the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, when you move to the microprocessor era. So quite quickly after that, uh, ICT is making uh, an important impact. Why might we have seen that happen more quickly? I don't think anybody entirely knows. The obvious suspects include that we're now much better at science and technology, that we really can exploit ideas much more effectively, much more quickly. You know, if we think about uh, what goes with that, the desire and feeling it's worthwhile to invest in R&D, leading economies today invest. 3 to 4% of GDP in R&D. The British economy in the 19th century, I don't know, we can't measure it all that well, but it'd be less than 0.1 of a percent. It is massively smaller. And I think you probably also say, and this is perhaps important in, in the American economy quite generally, is that Capital markets there are much better at exploiting new technologies, the investment opportunities, than the British capital market 200 years ago was. Remember, in Britain, it was really quite difficult even to have a joint stock limited company uh, during the Industrial Revolution. So I think it's a combination of more science, much more investment in R&D, And superior capital markets and and linked to the bigger contribution from R&D spending. Quite a lot of that goes with what the government sees as its role. So uh, federal investment in the United States was hugely important to the beginning of the internet. The commercial phase is the private sector, and those two act uh, in a quite useful complementary way. We didn't really have anything equivalent to that uh, 200 years ago. Having said all those things, there's something that I'm not entirely qualified to comment on, but listeners might want to think about it for themselves. Is one of these technologies, in some sense, intrinsically much easier to develop than than the other? In other words, you know, like in Olympic diving competitions, is there a degree of difficulty of difference? You know, that STEAM was perhaps awfully hard to understand and would have been for us ICT much easier. I'm a bit sceptical of that, but I suppose it has to be there uh, as a possible alternative hypothesis. Uh, But I'm inclined to go along with these uh, arguments, which we've made big investments in what we might call the knowledge economy, and they do pay off when something
0: like ICT beckons. We were talking about sectors of the economy there, like uh, ICT compared to the rest, steam compared to the rest. When we talk about structural change or the three key sectors of the economy, the traditional economy, why are accurate estimates of sectoral labour and output shares so important to the measurements and how may they change our views of the sources of productivity? And again, we can come back to the Industrial Revolution, if you like.
1: Yeah, I think we probably should discuss this in the context of the Industrial Revolution. Um When I did my research 40 years ago, I came up with something which I thought was a very paradoxical conclusion and which nobody else believed, and I think they were probably right not to believe it. Namely, that on the basis of what I thought about the use of labour in the economy on the information available at the time, it seemed that after you did the calculations, uh, for much of the Industrial Revolution period, labour productivity growth in agriculture seemed to exceed that in industry uh, and actually by quite a lot in some of the period... (laughs) Uh, Now, I sort of rationalized that a little bit by saying, well, there's some parts of industry which aren't really affected very much by the Industrial Revolution, so that removes a bit of the paradox. And we do know that there were improvements in agriculture, things like crop rotations uh, and so on, farms getting larger, probably contributed, et cetera. But deep down, I never really believed that conclusion. (laughs) And I sort of um, sympathized with the critics Um, Now, if you're measuring those uh, sectoral contributions, you really do need to know who was working in what, what the structure of employment was uh, as the Industrial Revolution came along. And that's a crucial piece of information for then calculating the rate of growth of the labour force by sector for the subsequent years, Uh, we haven't changed our view really on the rate of growth of the labour force overall during the Industrial Revolution. It's more in which sectors was employment growing faster than others. And what we've had since I I did the work uh, 40 years ago is a lot more research into this question of what was the structure of employment in the mid-19th century. And there has been a massive and extremely successful research project done by the Cambridge Group for Population, uh, led by Lee Shaw Taylor, which has, I think, changed our opinion about the mid-19th century a lot, including... in in that is uh, I think there's much more account now taken of employment of women whereas the earlier information was really based more on what did men do. The information we used to rely on came just from the so-called social tables constructed by contemporary observers um, with all sorts of (laughs) interests in mind. Joseph Massey did the one for 1759, uh, which I more or less relied on. Shaw Taylor and the Cambridge Group's work just says that isn't actually as reliable as one would hope, and the key conclusion from their research is that the British economy was already quite a lot more industrialised around 1760 than I had thought when I did my work 40 years ago. More people in industry fewer people in agriculture the proportion looks like that Uh, when you then work out the corollary of that well uh, the proportions working in those sectors in 1850 our opinion today is no different really from what it was uh, in the past the census gives us a lot of that information Uh, so Uh, If you now decide that more people were employed in industry uh, than you'd believed with the earlier estimates and fewer in agriculture, that translates into saying the rate of growth of the labour force in industry was slower during the Industrial Revolution than we previously believed. And the rate of growth of labour in the agricultural sector was larger. Um, And of course, for a given set of estimates of output growth, the next step would be to say, well, that must mean uh, that uh, labour productivity growth in industry was higher than we previously thought and labour productivity growth in agriculture was lower than we previously thought. Using all this Cambridge group work in a a kind of carefully judged way, uh, Steve Broadbury and his colleagues sort of work out the implications of that, and we get back to something much more like the traditional view. Industrial labour productivity growth surely was faster than agricultural. Uh, So the Broadbury estimates are that labour productivity growth in industry Forty years up until the turn of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries was about 0.7 of a percent a year. Agriculture about 0.25, and after 1801, uh, for the next fifty years. Industry about 1%, agriculture about 0.2%. But uh, that uh, shows you, I think, how dependent we are on some key pieces of information and how uh, a lot of research over many years has just given us more pieces of the jigsaw. We We can do a better job now. And um, incidentally, just as a footnote, I think it's perfectly possible that those employment structure numbers uh, will be further revised in future. Uh, I'm not sure we've got the definitive answer yet, but I do think what we've got now is much better than I was trying to work with uh, in the 1980s. We
0: had Martin Nervan a couple of months back and he was talking about similar problems today with looking at productivity Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, especially. Coming back to the Industrial Revolution, the key question, it's the question that's been around economic history ever since ever. What are the leading or competing complementary theories on why productivity growth accelerated during the Industrial Revolution? In other words... What caused that?
1: We can think of lots of possibilities. I'm just going to focus on two in answering your question, but I think they are the two highest profile ones at the moment, uh, and they're the ones associated with Joel Mulcair and Bob Allen. They don't, either of them, really include uh, institutional improvement Uh, as such, which um, I can think of other fairly modern treatments which might stress that, but uh, I'll leave that on one side. Uh, The Mokir argument sort of takes off from what I was saying at the start of this uh, this interview, uh, namely that the Industrial Revolution occurs when Capability to make in invention and innovation improves. So Mokeer locates it in the context of um, the consequences of the enlightenment a different approach to accumulating knowledge, uh, much better knowledge access institutions, which allow the spread of that knowledge, essentially a much more empirical approach to trying to uh, improve the way we, we did things. And that has all sorts of manifestations like a spread of mechanics institutes, uh, many more people being able to do what we might call the basic arithmetic necessary for some of this uh, empirical observation and so on. And uh, the MOKIA research program has tried to flesh out that innovation, invention owed a lot to people who were somehow or other influenced by or part of the Enlightenment enlightenment movement. Uh, Some would say it almost comes over as a kind of rather elitist story uh, about invention. Uh, That's probably not quite fair, because the Mokir story says you actually need the right sort of human capital to implement these improvements. And, And that's a lot of certain sorts of skills Uh, so mechanical skills are important uh, and that sort of links to a kind of fusion of the implications of the enlightenment with those of the apprenticeship system they come together uh, in a very uh, useful way and The work, for example, that Morgan Kelly and Cormac O'Grada have been doing recently on these practical skills uh, flags up people like watchmakers as really quite important, notes that mechanics were crucial. They've worked with Mocha and I think in a sense they're part of the same research programme as far as this issue is concerned. Uh, so that's almost a supply-side argument, if you like. Uh, Alan, on the other hand, uh, stresses the incentives to innovate, and I think in a way is more about the demand uh, for inventions or innovations, or at least that, that comes out in the story in the end. So the central feature of Alan's view of the world, I think, is that Getting technology to the point where it is commercializable is essentially quite an expensive business. You incur a lot of fixed costs in doing that. A key thing then is if you are successful, how many people will adopt your improvement? How big is the market? And that uh, turns, in in Alan's view in particular, on uh, how expensive various factors of production were. Uh, So Alan, in the end, says Britain's big advantage was that its labour was expensive by world standards, but its energy sources were quite cheap. Uh, So that uh, inventions which would uh, save labour, and would uh, perhaps take advantage of the relatively cheap energy, ultimately coal, um, but initially perhaps water, uh, they would find a ready market in Britain more than in countries which uh, had different factor prices. So in the bottom line is the Industrial Revolution was invented in Britain because it paid to invent it in Britain the argument might be made more subtle than that if if you take the the key thing to be the potential number of adopters then that might bring in again those mechanical skills and so on uh, that they are an important part of the labor force which make it worthwhile adopting uh, the inventions. Allen's claims have proved, I think, more controversial than uh, Keir's, certainly recently. Uh, there are a lot of difficulties, I think, with measuring relative factor prices appropriately. Uh, and some, at least, of Alan's examples, for example, uh, the incentive to adopt the spinning jenny, he makes comparison between Britain and France. Um, I don't know that the the numbers really hold up Alan's conclusion. Uh, Judy Stevenson recently has done a lot of research on uh, builders' wage rates in London and concluded that measuring them well, measuring them really accurately, Possibly doesn't give the conclusions that Alan uh, claims, but there's a big argument between them. Uh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to adjudicate, uh, but it's certainly a disputed proposition. The one side is looking at induced innovation incentives from the configuration of the economy. The other side is looking at um, uh, developments which are perhaps autonomous to the economy, exogenous to it, uh, coming from uh, improved ways of going about trying to invent things. My own view is that the evidence for both these hypotheses offers them some support suggests that neither of them is likely on its own to be a comprehensive reason uh, for what we observe. But also I note that I don't think these are um, sort of mutually exclusive. It might be that, as, as you said a moment ago, they're actually complementary explanations rather than entirely competing ones. The evidence base for the MOKIA claims has probably improved a bit, uh, particularly with the work of James Dowie, his thesis at LSE, which gave a very good account of how knowledge access institutions grew, uh, developed, and seemed to be causally related uh, to uh, patenting, for example. But on the other hand, it's not clear at all that the Enlightenment has very much to do with uh, the Crucial breakthroughs in the textile industry. The textile industry might well be a much better candidate for an Allen type explanation, although not necessarily the precise one that Allen himself put forward. So, Nick,
0: we did have Carl Benedict Frey on here talking about the technology trap, his book that was published two years ago. There is this prevalent theory going around that is for a significant part of the first phase of the Industrial Revolution, the share of national income allocated to labour fell against the share allocated to the capitalists, something that you've described, or Bob Allen and others have described as Engels' pause. What is your interpretation of this argument? If we take
1: the idea of Engels' pause as Bob Allen put it forward, uh, he sees over the long run a big decrease in the share of labour in national income. Carbonate Frey sort of took that as gospel for what he, he wanted to do. And certainly there is uh, an increase in the share of capital. I think if you do the measurement properly, uh, the increase in the share of capital comes almost entirely at the expense of a decrease in the share of land land rents and so on, national income. And in the long run, the share of Labour doesn't really change very much at all. My my most recent estimates have been Labour's share in 1780 was about 57% of uh, national income. In 1840, it was about 59%, possibly just slightly higher. The problem, I think, has come through the way that Engel's pause was was inferred from the data when Alan did his paper a long time ago now and with uh, much less good information. I think the key thing here is to use the right price deflator to measure real wages in this context. The key thing I think to do, and if you work through the little formula, it's clearly um, logically correct, is when you deflate nominal GDP by the GDP deflator, to get real GDP, you should use that same GDP deflator to deflate your series for nominal wage earnings. Until very recently, uh, the real wages numbers were always produced, uh, deflating by a cost of living index, a cost of living index appropriate to workers. The weights for different prices in the cost of living index and the GDP deflator, not surprisingly, are very different. Uh, so what we find is that real consumption earnings do indeed grow more slowly than national income per head over quite a long period of time. But that's not true for what we might call real product wages, which after about 1800, uh, grow very similarly GDP uh, per person. Uh, Alan shouldn't be uh, held to blame for that at all. We've only been able to do this correct deflation since the work of Broadbury, in which he produces estimates of the GDP deflator. So uh, our ability to do this calculation properly Uh, is relatively new. But I think that takes out Engels' pause. I think that's actually quite an important thing to know. Because Engels' pause has been seized on by quite a lot of economists who are worried about the implications of new technology uh, for Labour, see it as decreasing Labour's share, perhaps uh, not giving any advantages in higher real wages. They're thinking about that as a vision for the 21st century. But in thinking about that vision, I think they're drawing on an incorrect picture of the early 19th century. Uh, if we then go on to to fill out the story, I don't think this is a story of rapid real wage growth. It certainly isn't. But we've got a story where essentially both labour productivity and real wages grow rather slowly during the Industrial Revolution uh, classic period and real wages start to grow uh, more strongly after about 1830, uh, depends exactly on the timing. Uh, But by the middle of the 19th century, real wage growth is looking more attractive, if you like. Uh, Again, if you look at the work that was done years ago on consumption Uh, During the Industrial Revolution, John McKeer did work on consumption of various commodities and so on. I think the overall picture has to be, in a sense, a bit pessimistic. You're saying here comes this massive uh, improvement in our ability to uh, improve productivity, improve technology. Uh, It doesn't seem to have much impact on wages For a long time. I think that conclusion is correct, but inferring that this comes from the terrible labor-saving impacts of the technology itself, I think is probably wrong. The thing that we need to remember here is the British economy was hit by a pretty strong demographic shock and the fact that it is actually able to increase real wages, albeit rather slowly, during the Industrial Revolution, uh, can be said in some ways to be quite an achievement. Uh, that, that was the conclusion that Tony Wrigley made years ago in the context of writing his demographic history. I think on that, Tony Wrigley's probably basically correct. So in a sense, I accept that there's no very rapid growth of living standards for workers. But I say, yeah, but maybe you should consider the counterfactual. of uh, What might have been there with these demographic changes in the absence of the beginnings of stronger technological progress and the move to an industrial
0: economy, more industrial economy. I've seen you refer to that as the dog that didn't bark. In other words, the British economy could not have survived the population pressures without those technological changes. Yeah, I think the dog that didn't bark analogy is is useful there. Did the quality of labour matter in productivity growth during the 19th century up to say World War One? Do we see a change in the importance of the quality of the labour structure over time?
1: If we look at the growth accounting estimates which are there, uh, it does appear that labour productivity is, uh, owes more to improvements in labour quality after perhaps about 1860 uh, than before. Uh, I think we're going to have to put in one or two caveats on that in a moment. Uh, one very obvious uh, part of the improvement of labour quality is education, Uh, And we do move, of course, to uh, quite a rapid increase in years of schooling of the labour force after about 1870 in particular, uh, so that everyone is going to school at least for a little bit and schooling becomes free for the early years and so on. Uh, So that we're possibly talking about the average member of the Labour force having six or seven years education uh, on the eve of the First World War, perhaps about two to three years in 1850, something like that. We we know that there's quite a big... uh, a difference uh, we ideally if we're looking at measuring labor quality we want to take into account more than education and the extra earnings it seems to deliver that uh, we'd really like perhaps to measure skills more directly, or we maybe like to look at uh, labour quality on the basis of uh, a measure of labour services in the way that, say, Dale Jorgensen would try and do that. Those estimates don't really exist for the British economy, actually, at any point until 1973. There is a massive opportunity for a good research project there, it it seems to me. For the Industrial Revolution proper, we can only uh, really look at uh, education. We can't even get beyond that. Sandra De Plight has recently produced very useful improved estimates using her work, basically labour quality as measured by formal schooling, contributes basically nothing to labour productivity growth before about the middle of the 19th century. And that actually matches Jeff Williamson's research from quite a long time ago when he tried to measure skills per worker on the basis of a wage rate approach. He found that skills per worker grew quite quickly after 1860, but very slowly before then. The thing which I think would be um, sort of potentially a bit misleading about that is probably a a limitation of the growth accounting technique in this context. What I've just been telling you, I think, would be at best a measure of the contribution that labour inputs made to producing output. But if you think about it, uh, human capital is quite an important uh, aspect of how innovation comes about, either how inventions are made or possibly the speed with which they can diffuse. And uh, if you go back to that Kelly, uh, O'Graddha, Mokir sort of story, they are essentially saying that Britain has possibly quite small but crucial, group of people in the industrial revolution who have the skills required to diffuse this technology and actually probably are themselves in an incentive uh, to investing more of it. That would, in a sense, be how does human capital augment TFP growth? I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that could have been important, but we don't have any kind of quantification of that at the moment. So uh, I think we should flag that up as a limitation on what we know and a limitation on what you get from conventional growth accounting. It, it's a weakness of conventional growth accounting that, it, uh, as usually done, it doesn't take account of that
0: issue So at the end of the 19th century, the British economy is often viewed as entering a climacteric period of sluggish productivity growth. This is the period often associated with what we call the second industrial revolution. What was the cause of the climacteric, and what have your growth accounts using newly produced data revealed about the timing of the climacteric period?
1: Yeah, I mean, the climactic is a, an odd word, an old-fashioned word, and I don't think it's used in economic history apart from this peculiar uh, historiographical argument. Uh, it goes back to Phelps Brown and Hamfield Jones, at least, in a much-cited paper from 1952, Um The climactic, putting it into our terminology, is a slowdown in productivity growth. And I think it's one that you would say is a slowdown in trend productivity growth. Um, Earlier writers going back, say, to the 1950s, and I'm thinking of people like Coppock, for example, often tended to argue that that slowdown was something you saw in the 1870s. Later on, Charles Feinstein in particular, but Matthews Feinstein and Odling Smee, in their very famous study, came to the conclusion that actually there is a climacteric. they used the word, so I'll, I'll use it for them. This productivity slowdown, they thought, occurred right at the end of the 19th century, uh, at 1899 was their break point, and continued till the First World War. I'd always sort of thought that might be the right conclusion. Um, my instinct as an economic historian was to think if Charles says it, it's probably right. <laughs> Who am I to argue with him? Uh, when I revisited the numbers, uh, to, to try and update all these growth accounting uh, estimates. A couple of years ago, uh, I discovered a, a nicely constructed series uh, by Ryland Thomas and Nick Dimsdale, which is uh, in that uh, millennium spreadsheet at the Bank of England. Anybody can look at it in which they produce a series for hours worked. And if we can, it's much better to measure labour productivity in terms of output per hour worked rather than output per worker. And in the context of this argument, the key thing that that means is you would take account of the quite big decrease in the work week, which took place in the 1860s and early 1870s. Anyway, when you do... Do the numbers on the basis of output per hour worked, it's quite clear that the big slowdown in labour productivity growth occurs in the 1870s. There is a further slowdown in the uh, period after 1899, but, you know, in round terms, before this breakpoint of 1873, which Matthews and Feinstein were so keen on, uh, I make it that output per hour worked was growing at about 2.1%. Between 1873 and 1899, it's about 1.2%. And 1899 to 1913, it's about 0.8 of a percent. So the much bigger slowdown uh, occurs after 1873. Uh, those are crude period things. In a paper with Terry Mills, we we did some econometrics. And if you try and extract the trend rate of productivity growth, econometrically, it is clearly slowing down quite rapidly in the 1870s. So I think the first thing that the more modern numbers have suggested uh, is a change in the timing of the productivity slowdown, actually back to what an older generation tended to believe in. If you do the, the growth accounting uh, then again there appears to be quite a, a strong decrease in crude TFP growth, 1.3 percent down to 0.8 of a percent so uh, after 1873. Uh, what is harder is to do the growth accounting with labor quality taken properly into account, uh, we still wait some better numbers there to do it on an annual basis. But I think, it, as I say, it's fairly clear that TFB growth in the British economy was quite weak in the late 19th century. And over the period 1873 to 1913 as a whole, I think once you take account of labour quality, then TFB growth is perhaps only 0.1 of a percent a year. Now, that really is awfully slow. Uh, Okay, maybe there's a bit of measurement uh, error there. But this is, of course, the moment at which TFP growth in the United States starts to accelerate. Some of that is just the bounce back from the Civil War. But as you get towards the, the years before World War I, we start to see TFP growth in the US moving to levels that haven't really been observed before anywhere and that's sustained essentially for uh, up until world war ii Uh, uh, let's say. So the US moves to a kind of new level, a new league. Uh, Germany is also experiencing faster TFP growth than us in the late 19th century. I think that's a mixture of catching up and greater prowess at the second Industrial Revolution. So I think what I'm going to say here is the second Industrial Revolution was potentially a big opportunity, What is the second industrial revolution? I think it is now moving to serious use of science and technology. This is a much more educated human capital, well-trained, PhD-level scientists, if you want to think about it. And the hallmark is the development of the industrial R&D lab. You, you don't have that kind of thing in the Industrial Revolution. The U.S. moves into that much more than we do, and it makes the complementary investments in what these days might be called the knowledge economy, the national innovation system, Call it what you will. Uh, So they've got MIT and we've got Oxford is the the sort of traditional, rather hackneyed comparison. But it does actually tell you something if you think about it. So I think the British economy uh, is finding that the way in which it had succeeded in the first Industrial Revolution no longer really cuts the mustard at this point. And it's actually rather slow to move to um, the national innovation system, if you want to shorthand, which would deliver the fruits of the second industrial revolution quickly uh, in the domestic economy. Just to be clear, I am not suggesting that that represents entrepreneurial failure in the sense that the old literature uh, has it. I'm a fully paid up cleometrician. I entirely agree that most of the technological choices that were made on the factory floor or whatever were rational. Yeah, you know, I fully buy that part of the Matlosky and Sandberg story. But that's not quite the same thing as saying, have you got an effective national innovation system? And the more you look at these numbers with low TFP growth in that long period before World War One, I, I think you have to raise the
0: question about that. With regard to productivity slowing down towards the late 1800s, had that anything to do with the fact that Britain had been a leader during the Industrial Revolution. Was there a disadvantage or a penalty for Britain being a pioneer in towards the first Industrial Revolution? I think we need to distinguish between two things here.
1: What I've just been saying is that the way that Britain achieved the first Industrial Revolution uh, wasn't good enough as time went on. You needed to update, to modernise, to make different sorts of investments. A different university system would be part of that, and so on. Uh, You needed more chemists and fewer lawyers, I dare say, and certainly fewer theologians uh, coming out of British universities uh, at that point. But that is simply saying we were slow to do it. It's not saying that the success of the Industrial Revolution of itself uh, was detrimental later on. It's just saying you need to update and we didn't do it. Uh, There is a story uh, that the early start uh, really seriously hampered Britain, uh, going beyond what we've just been discussing, uh, before the First World War, and that's often told in terms of what used to be called the overcommitment hypothesis to famous names from the past like harry richardson Uh, richardson was the most famous exponent of that he essentially argued that you'd got very successful industries from the industrial revolution textiles for example which were so large and so successful that they crowded out new industry The the short-term comparative advantage, the general equilibrium story, if you want to call it that, was the success of the old actually, in a way, precluded the rapid advance of the new. Uh, So those new industries became importables rather than exportables in an international trade uh, story. I don't really think that's correct. Uh, And in particular, uh, I think if you look at the structure of productivity growth, both in American industry at the time. The problem for the UK compared with them actually initially is not that we have a in some sense backward structure of industry, it's that we're not very good at increasing productivity in the service sector. Some of which is probably unavoidable. Uh, Steve Broadbury's earlier work, I think, points that out very clearly. Uh, So you can get huge productivity improvements on American railroads, which really are attributable to American geography compared with British uh, rather than anything else. Uh, so I don't actually think the overcommitment story is quite right, although it's interesting. The, the antidote to that, if you were Harry Richardson, would be you should have had an infant industry policy. You, you should have gone into protecting new industries, nurturing them. Um, so in a sense, the villain there would be free trade. That's what Richardson was shooting against. But as I thought about this more, I suppose, having been exposed to people like Douglas North, uh, the institutional economic history stuff, I started to wonder whether the institutional legacy of the Industrial Revolution is actually what in the end is detrimental to Britain. I think it possibly was probably was even, but I think the moment at which it really bites is not before World War I, but after World War Two. So what are the institutional downsides which come from the early start? I think they are industrial relations and the very idiosyncratic form of industrial relations that Britain ends up with, craft unionism, multi-unionism, And so on. And which uh, has political stickability. Once you've got it, it's very difficult to remove it. And actually, you see uh, political parties competing, actually, uh, to cement it, to reinforce it. On the other side, I think the issues are about corporate governance. Britain is on a trajectory which relies relatively heavily on equity finance. It involves massive turnovers of owners of firms, ultimately very diffuse shareholdings of large firms, and a classic separation of ownership from control. Which goes much further than we see in other European countries. When does that matter? I think it matters when competition becomes very weak. Because actually, in a comp- economy where most product markets are uh, very open to new entry and all the rest. Competition is a good antidote to those corporate governance problems, call them principal agent problems if you want and it also takes away the rents which uh, unions try to share through weak effort bargains and things like that. So these institutions are in place and even intended. Intensified in, say, the 1950s. At a moment, Britain has turned protectionist. It's encouraged cartels. Uh, it's moved a long way away from the competition. Which McCloskey and the other cleometricians 50 years ago rightly emphasized was a key feature of the late Victorian economy. Competition was something which um, was a good antidote to some of these problems. Take the competition away, and the latent inadequacies or downsides of the institutions surface, and that. Impedes or impairs productivity growth in the so called golden age, I think. That's a rather controversial story. It's probably only me that would think it. Your listeners can find me sketching it out in detail in my 2018 book, uh, which I
0: recommend all of them to read. Nick, I could listen to you talk about productivity and the first industrial revolution until the next industrial revolution. Thank you very much for your time. You've been way too generous as usual. Uh, This has been a pleasure. Thanks again and take care of yourself.
1: Thank you, Sean.